It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle one, the package is being delivered. When Uber truly came onto the scene in the mid-2010s, it completely upended an entire century-old cab industry. Uber has disrupted pretty much everything about the taxi industry in New York. Uh, Drivers say that their wages have gone down. Uber says that it's providing service to outside of Manhattan, where traditionally taxis wouldn't really go. And Uber has also managed to topple a formidable, almost centuries-old institution, the New York City Taxi Medallion and revolutionize the way we pay for taxis, how we hail them, and how we interact with them. Uber is launching a premium helicopter service that promises to get me to the airport in only eight minutes. But behind the thin veneer of a shiny, multi-billion dollar rideshare company is a host of real problems from employment standards to driver abuses. On this week's Cyber, we have one of Motherboard's newest reporters, and he's on the Uber beat, Edward Ongueso Jr., to tell us all about the popular company and its troubles. But first, this week we have a special edition of Cypher with Joseph Cox to talk about a late scoop today about Saudi Arabia hacking Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. All right, we got JoJo here in the house. <laughs> I knew you were going to do that. Yeah, I know you knew I was. First time I get to call you JoJo. <laughs> yeah, the, the safest sticks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, this is the biggest news in cybersecurity in the, the InfoSec world today, and it's one of the bigger stories so far this year. Yeah. So there's a technical report that you obtained basically detailing how Saudi Arabia did something to Jeff Bezos. Mm-hmm. And specifically MBS. And specifically Prince. MBS. Mohammed bin Salman for the uninitiated, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. Many believe that he's taken control of the country from his father and he is sort of this rogue individual. He's he's also famously the one that many credit for having uh, Jamal Khashoggi beheaded, dismembered in the Turkish embassy uh, in Istanbul and the Saudi embassy. All around, not a great dude. No, no, (laughs) not at all. And of course... He is linked to all sorts of surveillance operations, and that's sort of the context in which we get this technical report, as you say. So this technical report, it kind of sort of comes in the context of all of this other stuff that we already knew about Jeff uh, Bezos's phone being hacked, uh, his photos of um, the sent to his mistress already being leaked, um, his security head of security, I, I believe is his title, came out in the Daily Beast and said they believed that Saudi Arabia was behind the hacking of his phone. And then just a couple of days ago, we had the Guardian FT reporting that an agency had linked um, directly MBS to this hacking. As in, it wasn't just Saudi Arabia, it was apparently MBS himself or someone using the WhatsApp account of that. When that comes out, we start asking around and me and great, great InfoSec reporter Kim Zetter, we both get a copy of this report that was made in the wake of that hacking by FTI Consulting. And it's sort of a very technical breakdown of the sort of indicators that make them think that the phone uh, was hacked. And then we publish that online. And it's interesting because it, it says, and this is some of the technical conversations that have happened around this hack or alleged hack. It's, there was no malware found on the phone, but yet after that video was sent by MBS himself or whoever was using that account to Jeff Bezos, 
his phone started leaking data, essentially. Yeah, so according to the technical report, um, MBS and Bezos, they exchanged numbers, uh, dinner, dinner in Los Angeles, shortly after they just said hello to each other onto WhatsApp. Then a few months later, out of the blue, the MBS account sends this video, which is a very bizarre, out-of-context a little clip about telecommunications as a Saudi Arabia flag and a Sweden flag. It seems like they weren't really chatting much before this. Anyway, after that, according to the technical report, the amount of data traveling out of uh, Jeff's phone, you know, increased exponentially, which is an indicator that perhaps something is going on or, you know, information is being transmitted. And they believe that this is when photos or maybe other stuff was stolen. It almost seems like this is malware we just can't detect yet, but we've almost, or FTI, it detected how it was operating. Right. It sounds like a symptom of something, right? I yeah, mean, exactly. if you want to be the most skeptical, you would say that, well, this video was sent, and then after that, something very, very strange happened. And I think that's fair to say that this spike in network traffic is unusual, even if you can't find the malware sample itself. Maybe, and this is speculation, maybe the malware self-destructed and tried to cover up its tracks. Maybe there's some sort of other explanation. But that spike in traffic is still pretty unusual and they mm -hmm. draw the conclusion that this is an indicator of uh, Jeff's phone being hacked. And of course, you know, Jeff Bezos did this big medium article where he talked about it, how he's almost being blackmailed to not talk about it, to, you know, suppress reporting at the Washington Post surrounding the assassination of Khashoggi. And he kind of came out and said, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. It is kind of interesting right now that, you know, you get groups like the CPJ coming out and saying that this is sort of an attack on the freedom of the press which I'm not saying it's not, mm. but there's something particularly bizarre about it being Jeff Bezos, the, the world's richest this, man. The, yeah, yeah, the world's richest man yeah. who's known for his company, you know, providing multiple abuses to work who, to its workers. Yeah, uh, kind of becoming this this emblem symbol of freedom of the press. Yeah, and of, and of course, as, as everyone knows, and uh, as you um, allude to, Bezos, of course, owns the Washington Post and. Um, Jamal Khashoggi was, of course, a columnist for them, and he was brutally um, murdered um, by the Saudi regime. So it sits within that context. And of course, that is a serious press freedom violation. I, I, I don't know if Bezos' phone is exactly... I mean, I'm much more worried about yeah. Khashoggi being killed than Bezos' phone. But if, okay, sure, they're, they're both bad. Fine, whatever. But yeah. I mean, I will. I would say MBS has been pretty openly uh, horrific, horrific human, uh, right. having clearly sanctioned this murder of Khashoggi. Probably, I mean, just... I don't know how anyone could look at that murder and not just be completely and utterly disgusted. Yeah, which, and then we had, um, this was before we got the technical report and published that, but there was, um, Trump tweeted something along the lines of like a jab or a dig at Bezos after the Guardian report. So yeah. It's like, uh, any, any, ex any excuse for a dig, you know, yeah. at like Amazon Washington Post or something. It's like, that's not really what's going on, mate. Yeah, like that's not really the point, my yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the report comes out, we go through it. There's some, uh, Kim picked out some interesting stuff. Like it looks like Jeff Bezos forgot his iTunes backup password. So they had <laughs> to get around that. Um, but a couple of people I've spoken to, one person who does um, IOS forensics and another one who follows sort of state hacking campaigns, they're not particularly happy with the quality of the report. They feel it's a little bit thin. I mean, even though there are still some indicators there and it's better than nothing, they're, they're still pretty skeptical on the fence about it. Well, I wonder in, in some cases, you know, we've seen stuff like this before and usually it comes back down to sources and methods and maybe there's some co connections between you know, these types of companies that do these forensics and, you know, 
let's say, some agencies that don't sure. want certain pieces of information. Sure, maybe that, that sort of thing happens. But on the on the face of it, there is still interesting stuff, but yeah. it's not 100% slam dunk, but it's definitely because, something to read. You because, know? you know, the Saudis hacking Bezos is a national security, is a national security concern. Right. Unfortunately. Right. I mean, it's right. a real thing. You know the CIA is involved in this. They're interested. Right, right. When you are the top executive of one of the top American companies, which not only, you know, sends packages around the country, yeah. but also has probably, I believe, the majority share in the cloud computing world, yep. which, you know, governments also use AWS, Amazon Web Services as well. Amazon Prime's also tight. Right. <laughs> national, national security. Um, but yeah, Critical that, infrastructure. Right, exactly. <laughs> but that is, that is really, really serious. Yeah. And maybe, let's just, just assume that was the chronology that they hacked and they um, got the photos and they started to blackmail with that. That's sort of like the least... That's like the lower bar thing you could do with access to Bezos' phone. If you had that access, you could probably do so much more to that company and potentially the clients, which do include the government as well. And, you know, the other thing I thought of when, when, this, when this went down and when this came out, uh, it, I mean, particularly, you know, the salient point being that it came from MBS himself, his WhatsApp account. There, it's known when MBS did his sort of 2018 or 2017 tour where he met everybody from like Oprah to Silicon Valley, a bunch of like bunch of top journalists. He was exchanging personal numbers with people. And there was even, you know, a frontline reporter in a sequence about MBS on a documentary that PBS had done where he's WhatsApp texting with MBS. And you got to kind of wonder, like, who else is how many people done this to it? Yeah. Sketchy. Because I certainly if I were if if I were on WhatsApp with MBS, which I'm not for the record, (laughs) (laughs) I'd be like, did I? Am I? Did I get hacked? Right. I right. go back in my history. Yeah. It, it could be um, a lot of people. And I, I guess I would just add that um, Chris Bing from Reuters tweeted this pr- couple of pretty interesting screenshots. First of all, that before we got the report, uh, a researcher was mentioning that it's an MP4 file. And then Bing found a, um, a vulnerability disclosure on Facebook, um, which is, you know, when they, they get a vulnerability and they patch it and then they publish information about it. Um, within the time frame of when MBS or the MBS account sent that message, there was, it seems, potentially a vulnerability in WhatsApp that would allow you to send a specially crafted MP4 or movie file huh. to a WhatsApp user. Huh. So there was a WhatsApp vulnerability Interesting. there. I, I, I mean, who knows? You'd what, have to get really yeah. specific and find out, you know, operating system versions and what version of WhatsApp he was running or whatever. But that lines up kind of well, yeah. We'll find out more because it seems like the uh, the infosec sharks are circling. Yeah, right I mean, now. no, no, this you is know? this is just what everyone's talking about for absolutely like, the past two days and probably tomorrow as well. So. Yeah, and you know, I'm going to leave it with this. The my 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 hot take on this was that whatever happened, whatever MBS did, it appears that his opsec is sloppy as fuck. Well, that that's a Saudi thing. Yeah, <laughs> that is a Saudi intelligence thing. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for coming on Cipher. Thank you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. 
Edward, welcome to the show. First time on. Hey, good to be here. Thank you for coming. And, and you're one of our new star reporters. Thank you. Trying to shit on Uber in the meantime. <laughs> <laughs> well, so far, you've. Uh, I feel like there might be a file on you at mm-hmm. Uber. Maybe. <laughs> How are they? So just to, for the uninitiated, Edward has been covering Uber for us at Motherboard. You've been picking some fights with them through some great reporting on on their employment standards. How is it when you when you interact with the Uber upper crust? Um, you know, I've gotten, I guess, like really the only exposure I have to them is like PR, and sometimes there's like arguments and fights. Um, there's only been like one who's really been like really nice, but it was because he was he. I was going to write a story about a specific like uh, app that Uber was rolling out. And he was like trying very calmly to be like, all right, you know, it's really awesome. You know, you need to, you need to think about it from this perspective. Or, do you understand what I'm saying? Do you get it? Do you agree? Do you, th- you see how it might be good? But other than that, it's just pretty much um, like, I guess, hostile or di- difficult, you know, to get information from. So you did a, a column for mm-hmm. us right before the end of the year, right before 2019 ended for the new decade and it was essentially how we don't need uber anymore mm-hmm. you know I, I i don't disagree but obviously uber has become such a pervasive powerful entity not just from a corporate standpoint but from a, a social standpoint how how do we not need uber anymore yeah i think you know part of it is it's become more clear because their plan is working, you know, from the beginning, Uber and its investors and its executives understood that the only way to get their service widely accepted was to price it at a way that undercutted taxi cabs that interfered with public transportation and that made people reliant on the platform so that they could eventually you know, ramp up the prices once they establish their monopoly. But it's becoming clear that, you know, one, the monopoly price that they need, you know, for their investors to be profitable is not a a price that most people can afford and they get priced out. It's more expensive, you know, to take uh, Uber from JFK to, you know, um, Manhattan either way than it is uh, to take a cab because the cab has a legally mandated price, whereas Uber just, you know, fluctuates or, you know, does it at what price they think they can get away with. And it's become apparent that what Uber is doing is it's just trying to privatize and make profitable urban transport instead of making it accessible for people. Because the point is you're supposed to be able to get to where you need to in a city. And if you're relying on Uber's there's no loss. There's no routes, you know, uh, to take you to and from work. If you're working late night shifts, graveyard shifts, early morning shifts, it really is on the whims of the market and where drivers are and where they think there's going to be a profit and where Uber also tells them that there's going to be a profit. Then there's also the question of the safety on the app, right? You know, Uber for a very long time has dragged its feet on implementing safety features. It's had an investigative internal unit that's job was to reduce liability to the company by uh, encouraging or deterring uh, victims of sexual harassment and assault from reporting their, you know, the incident to the police. Tonight we have a warning for women who use Uber, uh, which advertises itself as a safe ride home. A CNN investigation finds more than 100 drivers have been accused of sexual assault or abuse in the last four years, and it's a problem. The $70 billion transportation giant Uber uh, has gone to great lengths to keep quiet. 
They've also had rampant problems with, you know, verification of identity of drivers in other countries that have led to the murders of drivers in Brazil, um, that have led to assaults in France, in uh, the United Kingdom. It's uh, it's endemic to the way that they are running the platform because they need to be profitable. And the way to do that is to just have as many drivers on as possible without that much regard. Um, and this also affects the drivers, too, because the drivers are subject to... Um, you know, passengers who aren't, you know, if a passenger complains on the app, um, they don't really follow up. They just, you know, more or less side with the passenger. And so passengers can use that to abuse, uh, drivers can use that to, um, you know, dispute rides that they just don't want to pay for. It's a very, it's a very messy system, both for the workers and for the communities. And I think that now it's getting into like, it's, you know, second phase, whatever phase you might want to call it it's showing its face and it's like time to start thinking about how to kill it before it's permanent. Well, I think one thing you, you said in that piece, which I thought was really stuck with me was how it's sort of this propped up ride share that's allowing everyone to ride around really cheaply right now, but essentially it's being discounted by this investment for the promise of something that none of us will be able to afford. Right. You know, they've had over the past, you know, decade, they've never made a profit, but they've had $29 billion in invest, almost $29 billion in investor capital driven into it. Because if you privatize transportation, the profits are, you know, it's a, it's multiple, it's multiples of trillions of dollars. And, you know, that justifies it in the eyes of these investors. You can price it so that you get $3 trips, you get $5 trips. And then once there's nothing else, once there's no bus, once there's no um, competitor, once there's no taxi, you start doing $10 trips, you're doing $20 trips. And you can also use the money that you establish to make sure that no one tries to say, you know, I'm sick of that, you know, these expensive Uber trips, I'm going to make my own company. Because if they do that, you just drop the prices again. And it's interesting because I was just in Vancouver, Canada, where there is no Uber. It's not allowed. And I am with it. I'm down because, you know, these the rights of these unionized cab drivers are being protected. But then on the other hand, you have this like lack of ex- accessibility to cabs. Yeah. You know, it is actually a nightmare there. Like to get cabs, I, I, I waited in this line after it snowed for like an hour and a half to get a cab and there was nothing that I could use to get to where I needed to go. And it wasn't even that far. But, you know, that kind of, that's the thing about Uber. It's It's not that Uber, the company is great. It's that the app, and the, the, the idea of using an app like that, that, that pinpoints where you are quickly to pick up somebody is really convenient. Mm-hmm. And I always think to myself, that's, that's the beauty of Uber. It's not the fact that this is a, a, a morally responsible company. And it, it sort of makes people's at, people addicts <laughs> of the yeah, app. Yeah. You know, and, and I look at like, you know, oppositely Brooklyn, you know, in, in New York, Brooklyn you need Uber to get around certain parts of, of Brooklyn at night because there's not a lot of great subway access or the subways come kind of irregularly and you need them because there's no yellow cabs. As soon as you go into Manhattan, yeah, there's, there's yellow cabs, but Brooklyn, other than like Dumbo, downtown Brooklyn, you need Uber. It, you, it's, it's, it's become an essential transportational part of the infrastructure. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's, telling us that we're getting to territory where it may be too late because the solution then, you know, when you have Uber successfully gutting back uh, taxis and, you know, um, other competitors, I mean, one, we have to also remember like 
things are so bad that we are asking for like as part of a solution a return to or like more taxis again when the taxi system in of itself had its own problems right but that means that maybe we have to think about maybe like you know cities or you know states or you know the country itself have to guarantee alternatives to this or maybe it's a service that should not be in the hands of a private company right because sure it's making money for the investors sure it's providing some jobs for drivers um but only at the expense of like an industry that used to be there and at the expense of everyone getting around right like it doesn't make sense to have this company and hail its success when you cannot get around where you live without it the other thing is, you know, Uber as a company has had some pretty interesting connections to some interesting regimes like mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Saudi Arabia is, um, you know, double dipped in investments there. So they are one of the big backers of this uh, venture capital fund run by SoftBank, which is a Japanese multi-conglomerate. And it's called the Vision Fund. It's $100 billion that they invest into like most of the tech companies in the world or a lot of tech companies in the world they try to. And um, they have about $45 billion parked inside of that. That's also invested in, you know, a stake in Uber, but they've also invested their own money in the public investment fund, which is where they put oil revenues to try to invest in and make enough money to transition from an oil producer, right? And Saudi Arabia is also on the board of Uber. Like they're really intimately connected, even though they've been, you know, involved in war crimes in Yemen, even though they've been involved in uh, humanitarian atrocities, even though they've been involved in the, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Yeah, the the um the murder and dismemberment. Yes, you know, and all that was really done was a kind of uh, public male culpa, I guess, or like a. Yeah. Well, they like, I mean, I'd barely even call it that. It was like, yeah, we found the guys who did it. It was rogue. We did nothing to do with it. And they executed five five guys, I think. Or yeah, they, who or they didn't name to. also. Yeah, right? and it's just sort of like, well, uh, you didn't, that's not, uh, that's not sufficient. Yeah, it's not, it's nothing. And, uh, you know, Uber got in hot water uh, last year because the, um, CEO said something like, you know, they made mistakes and they grow from it. You know, like how yeah. <laughs> yeah. cutting a guy's head off. You yeah. know, sometimes it happens. They're like, we've done bad things too. Sometimes, you know? yeah. Sometimes you <laughs> issue a political assassination and you cut somebody's head off. I mean, what's the big deal? Yeah, you know, you learn from your mistakes. <laughs> you pick yourself up, you dust yourself off, and you move on from the murder and dismemberment of a human. And I think a lot of people were kind of like surprised, outraged, as they should be, but also. That I think that also speaks to us having lost sight of what Uber is. You know, Uber really doesn't care, you know, who's investing money into it. And it's more than it will take more money from Saudi Arabia. They could kill another person tomorrow and dismember them. And they would still take their money because they need the money, right? That money is integral to them justifying their existence and going forward. And if that means they have to get money from dictators or they get money from questionable businessmen, then, you know, so be it. And meanwhile, you have some of these, you know, these cab unions in places like France where these people Mm -hmm. are struggling to make a a living. Mm -hmm. And in France, uh, you know, I've been trying to cover French drivers more and more because I I think that we we talk a lot about Uber and Lyft in in the United States. But like, you know, the labor conditions, even in countries with more labor rights in the United States can be worse uh, because it's a little bit more distant, I guess, from the uh, from our, you know, eyes and ears. And in France, you know, they had national actions um 
they occupied the uh, green light hubs where drivers go to register, to renew their licenses, to get certified, to have questions or a problem solved. Um, they did all that in efforts to negotiating like livable wages, uh, more control over their own safety and the work that they do. And Uber just responded by like firing the leaders of the of the protest and um, yeah. from the sounds of it, you know, just like ignoring. It's just like it's like it's it's comical villainy. Yeah, you know, and um, you know, part of me wonders because they had a horrible year in 2017. Things like this were coming out. Uber, the ride-hailing app, was valued between $60 and $70 billion at the beginning of 2017, with CEO Travis Kalanick's position at the firm seemingly secure. Now, after reports of sexual harassment and unethical business practice inside Uber, Kalanick is out and $10 billion has been wiped off the value of the privately owned company. And they also had the fact that, you know, their culture of you know, misogyny and sexual harassment was coming up. And they had hacks that they were revealing, um, had stolen massive amounts of data. And they had, you know, Travis Kalanick, you know, exploding on drivers. Like so many crises and leaks and scandals in one year. And I thought, or people thought that the company would, you know, change course, right? And, you know, commit itself to at least being like not so comically you know, stupid and evil, but it's, it's a core part, I think of like the business model, like they're just going to be this way until they make a profit. And after that, actually, they keep getting away with it, you know? So the last thing I wanted to ask you about was, you know, I think there needs to be more reporting on this Mm because I think, you know, you look at something like Facebook, it took a while for, you know, people to really understand how invasive it was in your life and what data it was sucking up about you. I mean, I think like people who worked in tech and worked in surveillance, I mean, myself included, always thought that this company was doing something really nebulous and scary. And then turns out it was. I think one of the next shoes to drop is something like Uber because that app, what A, I feel like it listens to you when you're in the car. Mm -hmm. B, I think it attracts you Mm-hmm. before you get in the car and after you get in the car. And I think that, I don't know for sure, but my suspicion would be that they're making some sort of money off of the data that they're sucking up because that data is so valuable. Right. And that's the thing, right? You know, in 2017, I think it was 2017 or maybe 2018, Uber, you know, said that they would no longer continue to track users, you know, after the ride um, ends. But I know that journalists reporting it have said or reporting on Uber have said that, you know, sources in Uber or uh, engineers or, you know, management, whoever they're talking to, still are uneasy about, like, meeting with journalists if they have the app installed because of concern over whether they're going to be tracked and then, you know, the leak or the source is going to be identified. Breaking news tonight for Uber users. Reuters now reporting hackers downloaded personal information of 57 million Uber users and its drivers around the world. Those hackers downloading names, email addresses, phone numbers, and driver's license numbers of around 600,000 drivers in the U.S. Uber's CEO saying that hack happened in late 2016. Two people from outside the company got a hold of data stored on a third-party cloud-based service. Uber reportedly paid the hackers $100,000 to delete all of the data and never reported the breach. I'm sure I'm sure that they're using the data that they have on 
people, they're rolling out as a safety feature, something that will record conversations and videotape them. So, you know, like that is major. It's privacy concern. Yeah. You know, I don't even think that holds up. Uh, legal scrutiny in a lot of places. Well, it's like get your house, get your house in order, and get 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 good drivers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, and also just like I think this really should let us like ask whether or not it makes sense to like outsource that whole process to a company. Like, why should it? Like, you know, transportation. Like, I don't think that we would ever allow like bus systems and subway systems to ever be handed over to private hands just because like they might make them more efficient, right? Because they made an app or because they have a service. And I wonder why, when people understand how integral Uber is to their lives, how in- integral transportation and mobility is, that a uh, private company is allowed to intervene, especially when it's just so royally fucked it up and never made a profit and never actually improved it. It's actually improved. It's, it's made worse congestion and pollution. Yeah. It's, it's increased traffic accidents. It's you know made quality of life in cities substantially worse. If you are someone who has a car and needs a car to get a, around everywhere. So why is it that we're trusting a private company to do this when it's never once, you know, proven that it can improve the experience unless it's coming into an area that already destroyed com- competition and you know other forms of transit. Which is why we just need to get these these cab companies on their own apps and just mm-hmm. move to that that format, and then we'll be all the better. I think that would be good. Yeah, I think that you know having having that app or having cab companies with apps that'd be like a good first step. Have some competition cut everyone down to size. And then from there we can move. I totally agree. You know, it says a lot about the state of capitalism when you have a company like Uber that is surging, Mm -hmm. no pun intended. Mm -hmm. And then it has something like a fucking Uber helicopter in New York available. Like what, (laughs) like what (laughs) is, where have we got, what kind of Wolf of Wall Street, should you know, we we get are we submitting ourselves to? They rolled out that helicopter feature the week of like this massive helicopter crash in Midtown, and it was just like it was the most. It was just like I was watching them on two screens. It's like you see the report that there's a helicopter that crash, and there, and I'm not sure if it was also the same week as an explosion, or maybe an explosion happened. And then Uber's like, yeah, but this is going to be the safest form of transportation. Oh no, they're not. <laughs> yeah. You talk, you talk to any any military vet, and I, I do a lot of work on on military stuff. I know so many people who've been in helicopter crashes who were in the mm-hmm. military because they're just like, like you know when the Bin Laden raid happened. Yeah, helicopter they crash. Cra- they crash. <laughs> they crash. But like, also, it's not uncommon. That's the other thing. Mm-hmm. If everyone's like, they crash. It's like, how uncommon is that? You're like, no, no, no. That happens. <laughs> it's a it's, lot more than you think. <laughs> it's really like the company is just looking for anything to make a profit. I mean, like first it was supposed to be the ride hailing, then it was supposed to be Uber Eats, and now they've sold out like major operations of both Uber Eats and Uber across the world. They sold their Uber Eats operation. I in can't. India. I can't stand Uber Eats. It's you know, like it, they always give you these weird boxes and stuff. I haven't used it in like five years. And you know, really, it's it shouldn't be it shouldn't be a thing. I, there's no there's really no profit at this point in delivering. They're just burning money into it, which is why they sold. They're selling their operations. They sold their operations in all of Southeast Asia for ride hailing, right, uh, to competitors. Um, I think like what you're seeing is slowly like a managed retreat. Is now they say, okay, 
Next profit is going to be in on-demand labor, which they're rolling out in Chicago. Next profit is going to be in autonomous vehicles, which were never coming. You know, next profit. Yeah, is what are they be- happening? <laughs> <laughs> it was supposed to be like seven, five, three. Yeah, I know. Ago. Like it's it's kind of like what's it called? The the when we become when we merge with machine. Oh, the singularity. The singularity oh, that was yeah, supposed I to happen that. like ten years ago too. Yeah, when I was a kid, I wanted. I read that and I was like, I'm going to be a robot. You know, like I'm going to be a robot in thirty years. Here's it's the thing. Awesome. <laughs> when I read that, I remember thinking, that's where I become a Luddite. I don't yeah. want to be a robot. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to live forever. Are you insane? Yeah. Well, so I, like The only people who want to live forever are sociopaths who run tech companies. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't want to live forever. <laughs> I don't want to do email with my brain. Like, that's a level of, like, productivity that's just going to ruin living. And the, and. They they don't see any problem with it, so it's like, it's, it's just endless. It's like it never ends. It's these things are never going to happen. They're I think convenient stories, myths that maybe some people believe in, but most of them understand. They just need it to justify a really unjustifiable enterprise because of how many people it hurts and how unprofitable it is by any like metric or logic that they use. It just doesn't make sense. Well, so if there are any Uber engineers out there listening to this. You should tip Ed. Yeah, tip me. Tip him. <laughs> give him some stuff. Let's let's uh, let's see let's see some more excellent reporting from uh, one of Motherboard's very newest and best. Thank you for being on the show, sir. I thank you for talking with me. This week's episode was recorded by Brian Arnold, edited by Ricardo Contreras, and produced and voiced by me, Ben Maku. You'll hear from us next week. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.